all together for one Wednesday service a couple weeks ago. So um, I'm glad to have the opportunity. The, tonight's lesson will be entitled Lessons from Numbers. I recently went through the book of Numbers and really enjoyed it. I just kind of go systematically through the Bible, and I get more and more out of it each time I go through. And I like books like this because it's large, largely neglected, I would say, generally. The title is even kind of intimidating where you think it's just going to be lists and that kind of thing and, and would be kind of dry. And parts of it, you know, maybe for historical records, but it's still there for a purpose. And so I'd like to shed a little light on it. We won't do just one section. I'll just kind of do, it's almost like a survey hitting several of the high points that I thought were interesting. One key verse for tonight is from Deuteronomy 8.16, so not not from Numbers itself, but Deuteronomy 8.16, which says, Speaking of the Lord, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you or prove you to do you good in the end. So part of the understanding of this is understanding that sometimes the trials that we go through are the Lord sort of helping us, you know, testing us, proving us, but to do us good in the end. And that's that's one thing that I think would be helpful for all of us in order to avoid some of the mistakes the Israelites made, which is primarily complaining, as uh, as we'll read here in a few minutes. But it's an exciting read, believe it or not, and I've been looking forward to, to this. And for tonight, three goals tonight. I, I, hope, I hope to pack the next 35 minutes or so with as much information as I can. I love it. I love the Word of God. I hope to pack as much in there as I can. I hope to build your faith at the same time and also provide you practical exhortation and uh, just, you know, build your faith, but also build your faith so that you can share with others because there's really a lot in here. Uh, before we do, let's go before the Lord, please, in prayer. Father, we pray that you would bless the evening, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, and I pray you would help me speak what you have helped me to prepare, Lord, and what's in your word. Lord, we value every single word that is in the Bible. We are so grateful and so thankful, and also as it is Jesus made manifest in the flesh. Lord, we thank you for that and for the understanding that imparts to us. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the book of Numbers starts out with a census. So the first four chapters are it's a counting of each male by families and by tribes, all those who are able to go to war. So just to kind of break this down very simply, and they count over 600,000 men of war. So this is a war census, and it's very simply chapters one through four. So something that we don't have to read word for word right now. But one thing that I thought was important to appreciate from this is, you know, every time we're coming to church or family prayer night, bottom rowers, ladies' studies, men's studies, that's a war census too. You are being counted for spiritual battle when you come. This is a spiritual battle. We're not to forget it's, it's not here for us, for entertainment, or for the wrong purposes. It's here for we come, we gather for a spiritual battle. Just as the Israelites had to gather for a war census back in the days of Moses, us too as well. We're gathering for battle. And we need to be ready in season and out of season, just as the Bible says when Pastor teaches, Pastor Tim teaches so diligently through the word, that is preparation for us to be ready to preach the word as well. There is definitely a spiritual battle going on. A part of this, the, the, basically in chapter 4, it ties into the half-shekel tax to raise money for the tabernacle. So that doesn't sound that exciting, and a lot of people would even wonder why all this stuff is in here. 
for in terms of historical stuff. And that's one thing that you hear a lot of. And even I believed it quite a while ago. I, I believed it myself, just that the Bible should be relegated to just an old history book and there's not much relevant for today. But anything that is anything but the truth, it's such a lie. And I've really kind of challenged myself to go through these carefully to understand. And when you have the whole counsel of God, as Pastor Tim teaches, the entire counsel of God, we're able to put things together and put together the bigger picture. So the census, I found very interesting. It ties into the census that comes from Exodus chapter 30. There was a census, a half-shekel tax, that was tied into raising money for the tabernacle. So this is Moses' Moses's day, and they were building the tabernacle, essentially. So Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16 cover this, and it says, They shall give everyone that passes among them that are numbered half shekel for the shekel of the sanctuary. So this is raising money for the tabernacle that would where the priests would serve under Moses. The rich would not give more. The poor would not give less. It was something that was very affordable to everyone. So everyone was to give a half shekel as far as raising money for the tabernacle. And remember, the, the tabernacle preceded Solomon's temple. So the tabernacle was first. That was for the wanderings in the desert and when they were transportable, moving into the promised land. But then eventually King Solomon would build the temple, and then they would rebuild it after the first was destroyed. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're talking about, is a half-shekel tax to raise money for the tabernacle. What I found fascinating about it is the same thing is happening again. And this is why the Bible is unlike any other book in the world. It, it does talk about things in the past, but it also talks about things in our present, and it talks about the future as well. And believe it or not, this is somewhat prophetic for us because it's happening right now in Israel. If anyone is familiar with this, that there is a worldwide temple tax to raise the money to build King so to rebuild King Solomon's temple or to build the third temple. You know, it's something that we as Christians, kind of knowing the big picture, you know, we're wary of because it's like, wow, that's the temple the Antichrist is going to sit in. So it's it's a big deal. But that's what's happening right now. It's been this temple tax has been around for a number of years. And actually, a second, second one just came out as well. The, the first one is a half-shekel tax. I actually have an article, if anybody is interested. I like, I like making copies available for everyone so you can see what I'm talking about. But it's a half-shekel tax, and it's been around for years, for several years. I would say up to 15 to 20 years, and it's been available. And so they are raising money to build this third temple, and it's going on. But now a second one has just been introduced, and it's sort of a commemorative um, coin, whatever you want to call it. I think it does have silver, and it has President Trump's picture on it in addition to King Cyrus. So the mental image that you get, King Cyrus being a Gentile king that would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, President Trump also, they're commemorating that. So you can look it up. It's, um, you, just, you can just look up like temple tax, um, modern things, you know, uh, modern versions of that, that kind of thing. The first one that I mentioned is called the Sanhedrin Approved Jubilee Medallion. When I really thought about that, I really had to let that sink in. Like, wow, Sanhedrin Approved Jubilee Medallion. So what this means is that the Sanhedrin have reformed. So when I really started thinking about that, like, wow, that's the Sanhedrin from 2,000 years ago. That's the religious court back in Jesus' day has actually reformed. Right now they're called the nascent Sanhedrin. I have to admit, I had to look up what nascent meant. I didn't know. It meant, it means 
reforming or re-emerging. So the Sanhedrin are re-emerging. They have approved this mitzvah, this temple tax, to raise money for the third temple. So it's called the, so if you really want to get specific or you can see the article, it's the Sanhedrin approved Jubilee Medallion. So that's one of two that are out there. Then there's the second one out there with President Trump. So this way, Jews from all around the world can sort of fulfill the law of Moses back in the day where all Jews had to contribute to building the tabernacle under Moses, but now they can do it and they are doing it for the third temple. So that's why I don't like things being considered just dead classified material, things that we never need to dig into because when we have the ability to, to look at the whole, the whole picture, the big picture, praise God, the Lord gives us this information ahead of time. Uh, la- a couple weeks ago when we taught VBS, Jackie and I, our section was promises made, promises kept. So it was kind of like things that were prophesied and then the promises that were kept, like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, various things like that. There are a lot of, lot of prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus, you know, just um, very clearly fulfilled historically. I expanded it a little bit to the older children's group just because they, they do often like this kind of thing. I, I expanded it just a little bit to show prophecies being fulfilled in our day. That's, what makes, that's another thing that makes the Bible just so exciting is there are things that we can see, and I'm just going to run through a few of them just, just to tie this all in, the temple tax being one of, of several issues. But these are all within the last three weeks, which is why I figured I'd bring them up. But there, on July 19th, Israel passed their controversial nation-state law becoming a fully Jewish nation this law, combined with moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, strengthens putting the Temple Mount back into Jewish control, and it may, it's another thing that may allow for the Third Temple to be rebuilt. So this is considered a very big deal over in Israel. It's hardly covered in the Western news, but in Israel, it's a very big deal. It's very controversial. Back in 1948, it was considered the formation of a Jewish Arab state, but under President Netanyahu here just three weeks ago on July 19th, they made it a 100% Jewish state where they're not even going to give full citizenship. And forgive me if I don't state this just right. I don't know what it all entails, but they're not even classifying the Druze and some of the people that have been there for a long time and even fighting their army. They're not even considering some of them to be classified as full citizens. So there's a lot of controversy with it. I don't know if some kind of prophetic stock uh, clock just started ticking there with, with that, with Israel's national declaration of independence, but it seems to be a major stepping toward regaining the Temple Mount and building that third temple. I had all the children in the, in the class, all the older children, I was like, who was alive here three weeks ago? Because this is something that just happened within your lifetime, and it's, it's leading towards something bigger, and all the children, of course, raise their hand, but it's stuff that's happening in our lifetime. And I thought about it, what a powerful weapon and apologetics weapon and witnessing tool it is that we know the future. Amos chapter 3 states that he does nothing without first revealing his secrets to the prophets. So he actually reveals his plans to us. It's up to us to study the word and understand the big picture, what's going on in the future. Also, Jesus told the Pharisees that he would take away their key of knowledge. And I had to think about that for a long time, just thinking what exactly is the key of knowledge and what does it mean? So Part of what it may mean is that as he took the key away from the Pharisees, 
But for us that study the Word of God and we believe the Word of God, it helps us to understand those mysteries that the prophets have spoken about. So some of the things that he has revealed to the prophets, it helps us to unlock that. So that's just my interpretation of it. May may not be right, may be partially complete. I also think about God's Word is likened to a treasury and, you know, kind of unlocks the treasury of God's Word. So I don't know exactly what the key of knowledge is, but um, that's my two cents on it anyway. I was just reading in 1 Samuel where Samuel had told Saul when they first met, Saul was told to kind of look for an old man, just a wise old man. And so he, so Samuel and Saul met and um, Samuel told him everything. He said, Saul, don't worry about the donkeys that you've lost. You're going to meet some musicians. One's going to have this type of instrument. One's going to have this type. And he told him everything that was going to happen within the next day. And then you're going to prophesy with him. And all this stuff happened as, as Samuel had predicted. And then Samuel even prays for a thunderstorm to witness against the people. So I was thinking, you know, Saul might have at first thought Samuel was, Samuel was a crazy old man. But when someone knows the future, then that's going to get your attention pretty quickly. And we have that ability with the things that are going on in the world right now. Uh, honestly, I'm just so excited about all this stuff and just trying to watch and put the, put the things together. These are just several things that are happening in our day, and it, it's so much fun to see. Um, there is a book that I just got called Israel Rising. I wanted to show it to you guys. Just got it on Thursday, so it is hot off the presses for the 70th anniversary of Israel. So I just got it last Thursday, and it is such a neat concept for a book. It's actually a Christian gentleman. He leads tours over in Israel showing Christians or whomever, you know, the heritage about, about Israel and the Holy Land. So he is well-liked among the Jewish people. They love him because he, you know, just does such a good job about, you know, explaining the heritage of the, the, heritage of the Jews to the people. But he had a great idea in that there were old photographs taken where from the, like the late 1800s to the early 1900s, and it just showed Israel being desolate. It was a barren wasteland. So what he did is he had a photography team go and take pictures. And so what they've done, t- they've taken photographs of Israel at the exact same angle, the same frame, everything. So they line the pictures up where you see picture after picture of Israel being a desolate, a desolate wasteland and then flourishing in the modern age. So you see desert and nothing there, and then you see just Israel flourishing. So it's prophecy being fulfilled before your very eyes, and he, he really does a great job. And he, what he's doing is he's explaining how this comes from uh, Ezekiel 36, which was written 2,600 years ago. So this is documented prophecy coming to life before your very eyes. This is why it's, I think it's so neat. So this is not a product promotion or anything like that. It's to, let, it's to inform you all that it's a very neat concept. What I plan to do is finish reading it over the, the next week, and then I'll put it into the lending library. So if anybody wants to show family members, friends, anybody who doesn't believe, this is very visual and very graphic. But I wanted to read from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 8. But you, so bearing in mind, this is 2,600 years ago, 600 years before Jesus. And other places in the Bible had prophesied that Israel would become a desolate land. So Jeremiah, places like that talk about Israel becoming desolate. That was fulfilled. This is coming out the other side or coming, you know, at the end of that. So listen to what Ezekiel 36 says. But you, mountains of Israel, will produce branches of of fruit for my people, for they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown. 
and I will cause many people to live on you, yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase, increase the number of people and animals living on you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause the pe- people, my people Israel, to live on you. They will possess you, and you will be their inheritance. You will never again deprive them of their children. So written 26 years ago, being fulfilled, and you can, you can see it. Some of you will be going to Israel. Uh, Pastor Tim, Sarah, and I went several years ago, and that was fantastic. And those of you that are going in a, in a few months, you will see it with your own eyes well. He also quotes my, Mark Twain, which I've read little excerpts of when Mark Twain went to the Holy Land. And it sounds like Mark Twain couldn't wait to get out. It sounded like the most depressing journey. Mark Twain went in 1867. I'm just going to read a little excerpt of that to show how desolate, desolate it was in ruins and now how it's flourishing. It's a, Mark Twain says, Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine, which is Israel, must be the prince. The hills are barren. They are dull of color. They are unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly. The deserts fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. The Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee sleep in the midst of a vast stretch of hill and plain wherein the eye rests upon no pleasant tint, no striking object, nor soft picture dreaming in a purple haze or mottled with the shadows of the clouds. Every outline is harsh. Every feature is distinct. There is no perspective. Distance works no enchantment here. Enchantment here. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. I personally would not want to go based on Mark Twain's review of the land, but it just shows how bleak and barren the land was. And from the sound of it, it it got even worse because in 1915, there was actually a locust plague and a typhus outbreak among the people living there. So that's even hard to fathom. Like how can you have a locust plague on an already desert land? What's there to eat? And yet it just wiped everything out. And that was in 1915. So just very bleak. And yet, soon afterward, during the British mandate, the Jews just started receiving the call to go home and rebuild their homeland. And so they've been doing that over the last hundred years. So I wanted to mention that, that that'll, if anybody wants to take a look at it, and, um, and that'll be in the lending library next week. So very exciting thing, but something you can actually see with your own eyes. Something else that has happened here within the past three weeks. Uh, anyone familiar with the, the ninth of Av, that concept? It's, um, you know, it's, it's basically late July, early August, when that, that time of year, based on the Hebrew calendar, it's called the ninth of Av, and it's a period of mourning for the Jewish people. The, the tradition goes back where the, the oral tradition, and I don't know if this part is true or not, but traditionally they say that every, every ninth of Av, the Jewish people from the first generation of numbers, they would go out and everybody had to dig graves and then they would, be by the gr- they would camp by the graves and then certain people wouldn't get up. But the first generation that was not able to make it to the promised land, that's, that's one area where the ninth of Av kind of um, is a, a somber you know, reminder to the people. But I don't know if that part's true. That's not in the Bible. But that's just kind of what their oral tradition teaches, that the ninth of Av is when the first generation had to die off. And they did, did that 40 years until... Um, until the new generation was ready and everybody else had passed. I don't know if that's true. But the ninth of Av, the historical dates are when the first temple 
was destroyed. So Solomon's temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av, so late July, early August, right in that time frame. The second temple, the first one being destroyed by the Babylonians, the second temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av as well, which it seems like the Lord is trying to say something based on that. So it's a time of mourning every year for the Jewish people. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they release commercials every couple of years regarding rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So rebuilding Solomon's temple, every couple of years they release them. So I'm, I don't like to just tell you about it, I'd like, like you to see it as well. So we'll show you the first one from 2012 and then the last one that just came out just three weeks ago. So if you don't mind. And although it's a, a period of mourning for the Jewish people, at the same time, that's when they want to start building the temple is the ninth of Av. So it's very interesting, to say the least, but uh, and very exciting as well. That's something as well that anyone who doesn't believe that you happen to know, that if you're able to discuss things with them, Daniel spoke on Solomon's temple being rebuilt. Jesus taught on it. Paul taught on it. It's something we should know and be able to explain to people what exactly is going on. But we're seeing things pertaining to that right before our very eyes. Um, one other thing that I thought was interesting is just seeing societies go cashless. There was an article from the Daily Star, that's from the UK, where this is the title of it. We, we've seen some things already where Sweden is now totally cashless, things like that. So countries are actually abolishing cash completely, just as the Bible says. But I saw this article and I couldn't believe the title. It says, people will swipe their hand or face instead of using credit cards or cash. So that's the title of the article. That seems very much directly to Revelation chapter 13 where the Bible describes exactly, specifically what people will have to do in order to buy or sell. And there it is being put right in, you know, right there for a sort of programming us to accept it, I guess, kind of putting it out there that there are going to be biometrics where you won't be able to, to purchase things without that. And what it talks about, it talks about thousands of pilot programs to be released next year. Proposals, I'm going to paraphrase this part, proposals for biometrics are being fast-tracked to meet the EU regulations. And now this part I'm going to quote, he states, I believe it's the future. When you look at the convenience and security and what it does to the experience, I believe it is the future. There are pilots all over the globe, and next year we expect millions of units to be deployed. So millions of units of biometric scanners, whatever these things are, in order to make your purchases. So is it the mark of the beast yet? No, but it seems to be a predecessor, and it seems like we're going to have to make some decisions about how much privacy we're willing to give up. But anyone is welcome to take a look at that. I don't know if this is important or not, but the, that article was dated July 22nd on, on the 9th of Av. Seems a little ominous to me, but I could be wrong. But a lot happened during that time. So just to kind of summarize this part, I know I talked a lot, a, about a lot of things, but so many things are happening, and it seems like churches or the church, whatever you want to call it, have very little regard for the Word of God now. There is a shift toward experience in church, worship music, worship concerts, whatever. Very, very emotional, but the Word of God, God I would say, overall is being neglected. And this isn't the, the time to neglect the Word of God. This is the time to dig in and put these pictures together. So just looking at all these things happening, 
Israel's declaration of independence on July 19th, Israel blossoming as a nation in general, and the book there where you can see that, the ninth of Av, cashless society, these, these are all things just within the past three weeks. Uh, the, the temple tax as well, something that's ongoing as well, raising money for the temple, um, tying that in with the first four chapters of, of Numbers, taken with the whole counsel of God, including Exodus 30, it gives us an understanding of the, the past, the present, and the future as well. So it's amazing. And looking at the prophecies that were already filled, fulfilled and the prophecies that are being fulfilled before our very eyes, it's just a very powerful, very powerful thing to see what the Bible has, has laid out in it. So real quick, now we'll kind of move on through the book of Numbers, moving further along. The next several chapters talk about the duties of the Levites. You have the sons of Levi, the Gershonites, Kohathites, the sons of Merari. If you don't mind showing the diagram, please. I'm just going to show you this real quick because I learned something that I didn't know. I thought it was very cool. So you can see here, so I actually found out a laser pointer that I have to use probably every five years. I never have to use this. I couldn't believe it still worked in, in my profession. I never have to use this. But this is a, a diagram of how the Israelites marched. And so the important thing, and what I didn't realize for a while, is that kind of looking at the north and the orientation of it, is this is how they marched surrounding the tabernacle was like that. And you see that the Levites and the Kohathites and all of them were right in there with the, with the tabernacle, but they kept that marching formation. What I didn't realize is that they kept this essential formation, and then when they populated the land of Israel, they just kind of moved in, and, this, and they kept this order. So I never realized that, and apparently a number of commentators have pointed out how the tribes of Israel followed this basic formation. So I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't realize that. But um, there you have it. Um, just kind of neat seeing that the marching order under the days of Moses would actually, that's how they would actually move into the land with, with minor exceptions and adjustments afterwards. So moving on in numbers, so there are various ordinances and laws that come over the next several chapters, but they get their marching orders. There are the, the instructions regarding the trumpets. That's how the camp would end up moving is listening to the trumpets. When the trumpets are blown, they would have their orders to march or halt or do whatever they had to do. So there were a number of instructions written down over the next several chapters. And finally, in Numbers chapter 10, they are ready to move in and conquer the promised land. Numbers 10, 17 says, And the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set forward bearing the tabernacle. So that's it. They've got their marching orders. They are ready to go. Everybody's got their duties, their, their place, and everything. But then something goes wrong, as you all know. So one, one thing I thought was remarkable, the first 10 chapters, no complaining. They did great. There was no complaining at all for the first 10 chapters. But then when you look back, it's only because the Lord was speaking to Moses. When you get to chapter 11, however, the first verse in chapter 11 says, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. So this boggles my mind because there's not even anything for them to complain about. It just says, just out of the blue, it says, and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. We don't even know what they're complaining about. So here the flesh kind of enters where the, the people, you know, you think that they were doing pretty well, but then those first 10 chapters were just the Lord speaking and giving instructions to Moses. But then when you hear the people side of it, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And this kind of sets the, the tone for much of the book afterward 
where the people would complain and then Moses would intercede. You all know the story pretty well, I think. A, a lot of this you, you've read, so that's why I'm just going to kind of breeze through it quickly because you know the pattern. In chapter 11, the people complain that they want meat. Moses intercedes. In chap- then later in chapter 11, the people complain that there's too much quail. Moses has to intercede. Chapter 12, Miriam and Aram complain. Moses intercedes. Chapter 14 is the climax, a very important chapter. It's, it's called the rebellion throughout the rest of the Bible. It's the chapter with the spies, where the spies, they go see the land. The, the land is beautiful. They, they don't think they can take it. They come back and they get the people all worked up, except for Joshua and Caleb. All the people are, are set against going into the land. They don't think that they can take it. And the Lord has to chasten the people. The, it's almost comical how bad it gets where they actually want to stone Moses and Aaron. The people actually talk about stoning Moses and Aaron. Joshua and Caleb are trying to still the people, and, and they're ready to kill everybody, saying, make us a leader to go back to Egypt. So it's almost kind of comical how bad it gets, but that's, that's how much of a, I guess, a tizzy the people get themselves worked up into. And by the way, this isn't to point fingers at them as well. This is, this is all of human nature. This is all of us. Any of us would have done the same thing, by the way. So the people actually are ready to, to kill Moses and head back to Egypt, and they, they accuse him of just bringing him out to, to die, basically. And then you have in verse 19 of chapter 14, Moses' famous words, some of my two favorite verses in the Bible. Moses says, pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt unto now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. So praise God for that, because that, that would have been all of us, by the way. So the Lord has to deal out punishment at this point, and he actually states that they have tempted me these ten times. So it's building up to this. I suspect that's counting back all the way toward the golden calf incident in Exodus. So it's kind of building all, all this time leading up to this. And then this is finally the, the line in the sand, so to speak, that the Lord had to deal with punishment. Only Joshua and Caleb would end up seeing the, the promised land. So everything up to this point was that, and sort of the take-home message from this is that the people were ready to go. They were ready to conquer the land. They had their arrangements. They each knew their duties. They were moving forward. They knew the, the trumpets. They knew when to move. All of this, and it was the complaining that got them disqualified. The, the words that I see being used are complained, murmured, tempted, and grumbled. So all of those things, you get the, you get the picture as far as what the people were doing. I, if people had Twitter back then or any of those, I can't imagine what they would, they would put on that. But our country is doing it as well right now, by the way. But it's interesting to me, the reasons that they were not disqualified were, you know, it, it wasn't because they broke rank or part of the tribe fell behind or they had their children that couldn't keep up. You know, those aren't the things that got them in trouble or they couldn't hear the trumpets. None of those things seemed to cause a problem. It was the grumbling and the complaining. So that's what got them that's the warning for us. That's what got them in trouble with the Lord and at least got them temporarily set aside. Also, the Bible points out that it was a mixed multitude. So that's the people of Egypt that had gone on with the Israelites. So mixed multitude, meaning some of the Egyptians were there. The people of Israel started listening to the people of the world. That's a warning for us not to do as well. 
we were just talking about it at the Tuesday morning Bible study as well, just around the water cooler or whatever it is, just not falling into that grumbling and complaining. It's also a warning on social media, not complaining about whatever. You could cl- complain about a lot. Staying away from the complaining, it'll get you derailed in a hurry. That's the fastest way. You know, don't complain about your spouse, your wife, your children, your husband, your children, your job, your boss, your church. You know, protect Pastor Tim, protect our ministry here. There's so many things where people could attack, and we're not even going to know if it's true or anything like that. You know, we, we do the best we can to preach the word in truth here. And, um, and we as Christians, we're going to be undergoing attack as well. So things like the social media, it's just something not to fall into that complaining pattern or anything like that. You would think that the complaining would stop here, but it doesn't. You get into the famous chapter of 16, which is Korah's rebellion. So Korah apparently was a cousin to Moses, and he was also a Levite, and so he was um, thinking that he should that Moses kind of had a monopoly on the priesthood, so Korah steps in and wants to challenge Moses. And as you all know, that doesn't work out well. Korah's company is swallowed for for doing this and, and starting this rebellion against Moses. And amazingly, after the Lord puts that rebellion down, it says in Numbers 1641, but the next day all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. So they actually accused Moses and Aaron of killing Korah and his company. So the complaining doesn't stop. And then another plague happens. Another 14,700 people are killed from another plague. So it goes on and on. We laugh, but we have to remember, I've, I've complained more than 10 times in one single day, so I really don't want to point fingers at anybody. It's, it's our nature, but this is the warning for us. Interestingly, out of this rebellion, out of this final rebellion, we actually have a statute that holds today where the, the priesthood under, from, from this incident, Korah's rebellion, the priesthood would stand forever that only the priesthood has come, is to come from Aaron's descendants. The Lord made it pretty clear with Korah that only uh, Aaron's descendants could serve, and that's true. The Kohanim, the Kohen, the priests... They're being gathered all around the world to serve at the temple in Jerusalem right now. And they, have a, they actually have a college set up for the priests to serve there. So, so tying this in with Deuteronomy 8.16, just remembering as far as complaining, Deuteronomy 8.16 stating that, that he would test you or prove you to do you good in the end. If the Israelites had seen this, that the Lord was allowing certain things to happen, maybe they wouldn't have complained I certainly complain a lot. I've been trying to change that in my family. I work a lot. I complain about that. You know, I sometimes getting home after trying to get a quick workout in, you know, I feel like no time to exercise, try to get a quick workout in. I'm getting home at like 8, 8.30. Jackie's like, <clears throat> pull back some, you know, you can do it. And I'm like, I remember when I had three patients a day, you know, 15 years ago, it's, it's hard to pull back. So, I complain about being too busy, but then I complain when I'm not busy enough as well. So <laughs> the Lord can't win, you know, in, in that. So, you know, I complain. I come home and the house is dirty. I come home and there's a sandwich and fruit under our couch. I'm like, do you know, children, do you know what kind of pests that's going to draw? Sometimes there's a sandwich in the couch. It's like under the cushions. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, you know, what, what are you doing? These are all real conversations, by the way. I came home, and, and apparently the young children had created soap bubbles with dish detergent, 
So I was like, why would they make bubbles with dish detergent all over the kitchen floor? So the floor had this waxy, greasy feel. I was like, this is going to take so long to go away. And it was just this grimy, waxy feel. And it, I was like, it's not even good bubbles. What were they doing? <laughs> what happened? So th these are real conversations. And I've even sat my three-year-old down and, and been like, look, I don't think you're on board with <laughs> our organizational reforms that I'm trying to institute <laughs> in this family. I need to know, are you in or are you out? And then she's like, I want a fruit sucky. And I'm like, that wasn't the answer I wanted, but go ahead, just don't make a mess. So, so we've had, so these have been areas that I'm working on, you know, try not to complain, borderline complaining or discussions maybe with Jackie and the children. So we have discussions, but Anyway, I think it's better for us to try to remember Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. By the way, Jackie's patient. She's like, well, you wanted them. I'm like, yeah, but I, just I don't think I was that messy when I was three. I mean, really. So we work it out. So in closing, so just uh, I want to finish with a highlight. The last, the last part very famous section with Balaam. As you all know, Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel. That's Numbers chapter 22 through 24. He can't do it. So Balaam is unsuccessful. He was, a, he was a, basically almost like a witch, I would call him. When we read it, in our understanding, it's kind of like, is Balaam a good guy? The Spirit of God falls on him. Is he like a prophet who's just kind of wayward? What exactly is he? The ancient Jews and the ancient sages, they teach that Balaam has traditionally been a long-standing enemy of Israel. No, he wasn't like a wishy-washy guy, partially good, partially bad. They teach that he was bad. He was an ancient enemy of the Jews like Haman, just a flat-out enemy. So that's kind of their impression. I, I kind of think that they're right. It, it's an interesting read just seeing how he somewhat defers to the Lord, but not completely. So he tries to curse them, or he seems to want to, but he can't do it. But then he resorts to deception through seduction in Numbers 25, where the Moabite women seduce the men to try to lead them into idolatry. And then a plague comes from this. So Balaam, he tries cursing he, through his witchcraft, his magical powers, whatever he he seemed to have, and the, the ancient sages do think that he had some strong powers, but, you know, who knows for sure. But he wasn't able to curse them, but he did succeed at seduction through the women coming in and seducing the men to lead them to idolatry. In fact, it says this, Moses speaking in Numbers thirty-one sixteen. it says, These women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord, in the incident at Peor. So Balaam seemed to be behind this, where he couldn't get him through just out and out cursing and, and head on battle like that. He came in through the back door. So then we have an interesting man by the name of Phineas who steps into the scene. And this is Aaron's grandson. So he, you have Aaron, Eliezer, and then Phineas. And Phineas seemed to have a zeal for the Lord. That's just great to see. And Phineas actually executes two people, uh, an, Isra an Israeli, Israeli, Israelite, I'm sorry, Israeli prince or an Israelite prince, and then a Midianite princess. So he executes them for their treachery, and he actually stops a plague. 
So the Lord commends what he, he does. And it's not the violence that's highlighted. It's Phineas's zeal for the Lord and realizing what was going on. It says in Numbers 25, 11, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was, he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him a covenant of peace and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. So that is quite a commendation for Phineas there, an everlasting, a covenant of peace and an everlasting priesthood. That is remarkable to someone uh, for the Lord to say that uh, to him. And we see that it's his zeal that did that. He's a, a type of Jesus as well. So cur- at this time, the Israelites are told to harass the Midianites. They would take care of business a little bit later, but they're told to take another census. I don't know why they're told to take another census here, except maybe because of all the plagues that have befallen them, and they're losing, they're losing people through all this. But in chapter 31, so that's in 25, in chapter 31, there's a successful war against Midian, and it's led by Phineas himself. I think that's interesting because it wasn't Joshua, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't Caleb that led the battle. It was Phineas that led the battle, and Balaam is actually killed. So the Israelites are avenged, so to speak, under Phineas's leadership. And Phineas, I just found to be very interesting, and that's one of the reasons I was interested in doing this as a study and just really caught my eye, but Apparently, he lived a long time. He's seen again in Joshua chapter 22, and he's actually sent to lead a force against the children of Israel because it's believed that the children of Israel are engaging in idolatry. So he's seen toward the end of the book of Joshua where he's sent to punish the the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. As it turns out, they weren't engaged in idolatry, so the situation is diffused. He's the very last person that seems to be mentioned alive in the book of Joshua. Joshua lived to 110, and um, Phineas is the last person mentioned in that. And so he, I thought it was very interesting from how long he seemed to live. And, but he's the only person that I know of that is actively doing things that is seen kind of during the wilderness wanderings. And what really caught my eyes, because I was thinking, what is Phineas doing in the the book of Joshua? I thought everybody had to die except for Joshua and Caleb. And then what occurred to me is that Phineas must have been too young to be punished at the time of the rebellion, at the time of Numbers 14. Phineas must have been too young and was excused from that. Or maybe he wasn't born. I suspect he was, but I think he was too young because it was everyone aged 20 years old and upward had to die. They couldn't enter the promised land but 19 and under could enter the promised land. So I'm thinking Phineas must have been one of them, was able to enter the promised land, and then he stopped the plague by executing the people. And then, um, but he was a, a character afterward and just an important person afterwards. So I thought it was very interesting to see him mentioned several times in, in the book of Joshua, but he was renowned for his zeal. There's something very interesting that I learned about him as well, where in the... The verse that says, Behold, I am giving to him a covenant of peace. In the Hebrew letters, they were very, very particular about how they did the letters. The letters couldn't touch one another. There could be no overlapping. They couldn't be imperfect in any way. And yet, in the word peace, shalom, 
there's actually a broken letter in there, which must have been done by the hand of Moses himself because all the Torah scrolls have this. So it's the letter Vav, which is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is interesting. And this would have been forbidden, except it's an allowed exception, I'm guessing, because it went back all the way back to Moses' Moses's hand. The current um, Orthodox Jews today they believe that that broken vav, that broken letter, the, the way they kind of read into it is that it must have been an in, imperfect piece given to Phineas. But that kind of contradicts the reading of the text. It says, behold, I will give him a covenant, covenant of peace and an everlasting priesthood. Messianic Jews, on the other hand, look at it differently, which, of course, we would agree with. This, the number six is the number of man in the Hebrew alphabet. And so... The way that the, the Messianic Jews read this is that it, there's a picture of a broken man in the covenant of peace, that would be the Messiah, sort of just kind of hidden in the text right there, just this mysterious exception to all the rules where the letters have to be perfect. There are a few of them, and the exceptions are very interesting to, to the letters being perfect, but that's what the Messianic Jews believe versus the Orthodox Jews. The Messianic Jews believe that there's an, there's an extension and a covenant of peace extended to all of us, really, based on the image of a broken man hidden right in it. So for that, just to summarize everything, just remember prophecy as a tool. Remember, no part of the Bible is really to be neglected. It's, it's all there. There are some deep things in there, prophecy being a tool, even things all the way back to the, to the Torah, all the way back to the first five books of the Bible. Some prophecies have been fulfilled. Some are being fulfilled. Remember, just remembering Israel prophesied to be desolate and then flourishing within the past hundred years, the recent declaration of independence. We're seeing a major push for Solomon's temple to be rebuilt, the world economic system. One key thing to remember, Deuteronomy 8.16, just remembering that it was the Lord who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. That's the point. So complaining is the quickest road to being disqualified, at least temporarily. And although sometimes Numbers is treated as a book of failure, I don't view it strictly as that. It, it was definitely a form of discipline that the first generation had to die off before they could enter the promised land, inc including Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. They, they had to die as well. Only two were allowed to see the promised land. So it was a discipline to them. It, it's an example to us. And yet, I, you do still see the Lord using that generation. They did defeat Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These were two giant kings. They were actually giants. The Bible talks about the length of Og's bed just being huge, like 13, 15 feet. So hard to tell. But the people of Israel did have some victories in there as well. So um, they also defeated the Midianites, including uh, going after Balaam, who, who caused the plague to happen to them. And it produced champions like Joshua, Caleb, and Phinehas. And it's a great reminder that the Lord can use us despite our past failures, remembering that the Lord is a great redeemer, also remembering he extends a covenant of peace to any that are zealous for his name or to those that don't yet know him, also remembering it's just an exciting time to be alive. With that, let's go before the Lord, please. Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening. Thank you for the depth of your word. We just praise you, Lord, and ask for your blessing. Lord, we do ask for your blessing upon each person here, Lord, and that we would appropriate your word in our lives. 
Lord, help us to resist the attacks of the enemy, whichever way that comes from, Lord. We pray for your blessing upon Pastor Tim and his family, Lord, and those that serve in this church, even down, Lord, just blessing our children's ministry and the children. Lord, help us to raise up the next, another generation that knows you, Lord. And as number six, 24 through 26 states, may the Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All right, thank you all. You're dismissed. Have a good evening.